Welcome back to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics and the law and a lot of things in between. I'm your host, Loyola Law School Professor Jessica Levinson, and today we are joined by Congresswoman Nanette Barragan. Congresswoman Barragan represents California's 44th district. She is the vice chair of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus and a member of the Progressive Caucus. She serves on the House Committee on Homeland Security and the House Committee on Energy and Commerce, in addition to some subcommittees. Welcome, Congresswoman Barragan. Thank you for passing judgment with us. Well, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So in addition to the committees I listed above, uh, and I alluded to this, you are chair of the Subcommittee on Border Security, Facilitation, and Operations. And I know that this has been busy as of late. Could you update us on some of what you've been doing and some of what was maybe scheduled and not scheduled for today and next week? Absolutely. Well, President Biden has come in with an objective to make sure we're moving to undo the harmful policies uh, by the prior administration. One of those is a Remain in Mexico program, which is really this reprehensible uh, step backwards for our country. Um, And what it did was it required people, uh, migrants that were trying to seek asylum and applying for asylum to have to wait in Mexico for their cases to be heard. It created these camps, these horrific inhumane tent camps. Um, And today, big news today, we saw the first migrants that were under that program uh, being allowed to present themselves at the southern border. So we saw that process start today. I will be going down to the southern border on Monday to to see that process uh, continue. It's a step in the right direction. We can't get it done fast enough. So for our listeners, just as some time marks, because we hope this interview uh, lasts a while, today means Friday, February 19th, and um, Monday is Monday, February uh, 22nd. So it sounds like there has been immediate progress on this issue. Um, What do you expect to see on Monday? Well, I expect to see migrants who are pretty... Uh, desperate and frustrated from having to wait for so long on the Mexico side of the border, uh, feel some sense of relief now being able to present themselves uh, for their case and for um, coming into the United States. So I hope to see a lot of smiles and happy faces. Uh, I'm sure we'll also see people coming to the border who um, don't have an appointment yet, and we are trying to encourage people to wait for them to be called. Uh, we don't want any more uh, tragedy happening. We saw that happen this weekend in, in Texas, uh, where you have desperate uh, migrants who tried to cross over in freezing temperatures and and perished. Um, perished. And it's just really horrifying to, to see these happening. So I'm hoping for some positive, um, I have a positive outlook on this. Although we are hearing initially that uh, there's not enough uh, people being processed in one day. So I'm hoping that on Monday, we will see those numbers increase. Now, can you remind us, I feel too often like we have these conversations in the abstract where we say, here's a policy that changed, here's a policy that we're going to change back. Can you remind us why many of these people are at the border, what they're seeking and what they were fleeing? Sure. So these are migrants who are fleeing uh, countries like Guatemala, some maybe Central America, uh, maybe they are having uh, experiencing horrific conditions in their 
in their country. Um, sometimes there's kidnappings and deaths. Sometimes they've tried to go to the police for assistance and help, and they become uh, targets of, of crime and violence. Sometimes they're uh, asylum seekers who have spoken up against their government and need protection. I myself have represented a woman and a child from uh, Guatemala, and she uh, believed that the uh, gangs were trying to kill her because she was an informant. Now, she wasn't really an informant. They thought she was. They killed one of her other sons, and she was worried about um, her remaining son and herself. So many times they're escaping horrible conditions in their countries, and they're coming to this country to apply for asylum, something that is completely legal to do here in the United States, um, and to have their cases heard. Now, it's not easy to get asylum, I'll also mention. It's very hard to get asylum. And so you've got to make a very good, compelling case. I'm really glad that you ended the answer with that, because I think that's one of the things that we lose in the conversation, which is you don't simply present yourself at the border and say, these terrible atrocities have happened to me or my family and obtain asylum. You actually have to go through a fairly burdensome process. And I hope you do see some smiles on Monday. And this does seem to me, without making a partisan political statement, this does seem to me to be the height of public service to try and ensure people's safety. And one of the other things that I know we were planning on talking about is how you got into public service. And uh, I'm going to start maybe not at the beginning, but sometime around the middle and ask, how did you go from, you were in college, then you went to law school. I know you practiced at a major firm for a long time. Where was the moment where you said, I want to run for elected office? Well, I had been practicing law for seven years and I said, I want to do something to be helpful. I moved to Florida to volunteer on a presidential campaign. It was when I returned from that experience that I said, what can I do here locally in my own community? I was still practicing law and um, there was a local issue happening in my backyard. You had an oil company that wanted to drill for oil. I was living in Hermosa Beach and I thought it was nuts. I said, there's just no way I'm gonna just stand by and watch this company come in and drill along the California coastline. And so I became very active involved and decided at that point I was gonna run for city council and people said, nobody knows who you are. You're not from around here. And that's actually true. And there hadn't been a, a woman on the council in 10 years. And then, of course, people said, and there are no Latinos here. You know, Hermosa Beach has about 5% Latino population. Uh, but it's something I was used to hearing growing up. Somebody always saying, you can't because. And for me, it's always been that motivator to work harder, to overcome the odds. And um, so it was really this situation where... Um, I wanted to stand up for not just myself and my public health, but our communities. So how does that happen in terms of the nuts and bolts? I have students ask me this, for instance, when they take my election law class or undergrads who are taking a political science class. And I feel like there's just this black hole of knowledge, particularly if you didn't grow up knowing politicians or, or working in circles where there are politicians. How do you go from, I want to be involved in my community. I mean, I assume, you know, you go and you file the papers, but what does a local run look like? Well, there was a lot of, there was a lot of backstory here. You know, it wasn't like I one day I woke up and said, I'm going to run for office. 
No, I had worked in the Clinton White House as an intern. I'd worked in Washington. I had been around elected officials. I had volunteered in college with a local uh, you know, political club, and I had helped other people get elected. So I had an understanding going in of what it might be like. Um, and so I did have that frame of mind, and I understood I was going to have to raise money and I was going to have to call everybody I'd ever met before in my life to ask for help. And I understood I had to knock on doors to get my story out directly to, to the people. Um, but running for office, it takes a, a huge commitment. As you mentioned, you have to go and you pull papers, you have to fill out the papers and you file them. But then the hard work starts. And that is, how do you get your message and your vision out to the people who need to elect you? And that requires time, it requires money, and it requires a vision that people share with you. So it is very gratifying, but it could also be very hard because sometimes the people that you you think will help you will not. And sometimes people who you never imagined would help you, uh, maybe it's somebody you had just met, really go out on the line to, to help you get elected. So I would tell students if you are interested, get involved, uh, grow your network, make connections, volunteer on maybe a campaign, maybe volunteer with a community group, especially, you know, in the area where you want to run. It's very helpful to have that. I think that's really helpful and practical advice. And now you move from local elected office. And I mean, it doesn't, again, it doesn't happen overnight but you decide that you want to run for Congress. Is it the same idea in the sense that you have to spend a lot of time raising money? You have to spend a lot of time getting your message out. And again, the people who maybe you expected to help aren't quite there. And then some people who you just met are really strong supporters. Is it, I guess it's a way of asking, is it a fundamentally different way of campaigning when you're going from local office to federal office or do the fundamentals still apply? Well, the fundamentals apply, but the amount of time and commitment increase exponentially. Uh, because I remember getting the call from a member of Congress saying, I heard about you. I think you should run for Congress. My initial thought was, where am I going to raise a million dollars from? Now, that wasn't the first thought I had when I thought about city council. It was, how much do I have to raise? Okay, 40000 Okay, that's manageable. Maybe I can raise that. But a million dollars, especially when you come from a background like mine, and that is, you know, my parents were immigrants. Uh, they didn't have money. I don't come from a, I don't come from a network of family members that can write me big checks. Uh, but running for federal office does take a lot of time as well. I quit my job, uh, and I did it a year and a half out. A lot of people can't afford to just quit their job. I luckily had savings and. I took out a home equity line of credit to be able to live uh, and pay the rent. And those were those are things that I'll, it's very hard when I tell people, they're like, I can't do that. And it shouldn't be that hard to run for office. And I think that's also an indicator of why we don't have more people run for office um, that we should have represented at the table and, you know, increasing diversity in women because it is harder uh, among women candidates for certain and certainly women of color. 
So what are some reforms that you would like to see? I mean, what are some ways that we could try to either through legal mechanisms or through creating more pipelines and social networks? I mean, what are some ways to try and ensure that our representatives look more like us, that they truly represent us? Well, I've been a big supporter of campaign finance reform and some type of matching funds, almost like the city of L.A. has, uh, that would allow a more uh, opportunities for people to run who c- cannot quit their jobs, who don't come from that family of, of, of money or that huge network. And so some kind of matching funds, I think, would be great to have more immediately. What I think is in the pipeline that I think we can get across the finish line is something that House Democrats are working on right now in Congress in a, a bill, which is H.R. 1. It's basically a bill that will shine light on dark money in politics, requiring the disclosure of political ads. And I think this is helpful because what happens is you can have, let's say you have a candidate running locally and they're going to take a position against an oil company. And all of a sudden, this candidate who may not have that huge network, may have a harder time raising dollars, could have a huge you know, fossil fuel company, oil company, dark money, basically finance this campaign against this person. And that is hard to to go against, especially when you don't know where the money's coming from. But we need to figure out ways on how to make the office of running more accessible to more people. And disclosure obviously does a whole host of things. It provides the public with information. As you said, it can act as a deterrent to potential bad behavior if you know you have to tell people where your money came from or where it's going, um, and it can potentially reduce you know, corruption, the appearance of corruption. And as you said, there are proposals about matching funds. Now, the without getting too much into my campaign finance seminar, the response in some ways is, well, sure, but people can put unlimited sums into independent expenditures. And I'm just wondering from your experience, how much of a role did these outside groups, the political action committees, the super PACs, um, how much of a role did they play in your campaigns? Actually, they they played uh, quite a role. Now, when you take a look at it, um, sometimes they're women's groups, uh, sometimes they're environmental groups, sometimes they are, you know, dirty fossil fuel money. In my election, I'll never forget that my opponent, who was the top recipient of taking money from oil companies, which really gave us a good contrast, another Democrat, um, when he got an independent expenditure from the oil companies and the gaming industry, that actually helped me then secure assistance from some of the groups like Our Revolution and and was able to help me raise small dollar contributions. But we also had, you know, Emily's List, uh, which helps women get elected to to Congress, uh, played a role in our election and wanted to um, help me get elected. And so there was outside money. I think the difference is in our our situation, you could see the groups that were, were putting into it. Did you ever worry that a big independent expenditure group would support you and that you would absolutely not want to be affiliated with them? Is that a real fear that people who are running for office have? Or is that something that law professors just 
write about? I mean, how much damage would it have done? Because you would have had to say, look, legally, we're independent of each other. I mean, is is that something that ever crossed your mind was a possibility? No, not in my instance, uh, because I was up against an establishment candidate that was handpicked for the seat. There was nobody running for it other than this one person who was very powerful. And it was more of a situation of who is going to fund my opponent and what are they going to say about me that's not true? And how do we combat that if we don't have you know, the money or the resources or if we don't have a group on our side doing that? Um, I just can't imagine having a scenario or if I'm up fighting an oil company, the oil company is going to come in and do an IE for me that I'm going to have to disavow it. Uh, so in my mind, I don't, I, I can't think off the top of my head who might run an IE for me that I would have to disavow. But, um, but you know, as you mentioned, these are outside groups and for whatever reason, you know, they want to help one candidate or another, you know, sometimes it could be, uh, interest that turns uh, turns off voters, and I think that's always a concern um, that that could happen. I'm just not sure how often that really happens. So you mentioned, you know, what if some basically what if somebody lied about me, and then we had to combat it. Uh, how much of campaigns, or I, let's personalize it. I mean, how much of your campaigns did you ever just have to combat out and out lies? Because I can, I increasingly feel like active disinformation is playing a bigger role in our political system. So we used to have kind of falsehoods, things that were misleading. You had problems with omission where you took things out of context, but now it seems different to me. So, I mean, in your experience, were there just blatant lies and you had to say there's no basis for that? There is, and it happens more often than you think. The The biggest thing you see in politics is you have an opposition, you have opposition research done. Basically uh, somebody goes through your opponent's record and they figure out what they voted on and, you know, what they've done before. And then they take the information and they try to couch it into terms uh, for political messaging. And sometimes you look at the messaging and you're like, whoa, whoa, wait a second. Like, this isn't exactly what that says. And so I think there is a lot of efforts to mislead um, or you only get part of the story. For example, you may have somebody saying, oh, uh, you know, this candidate voted so that there wasn't any money going to homelessness. Well, what if there was a Republican initiative to fund homelessness, but it was going to kill, you know, a much bigger bill that was going to build affordable housing, right? So some, a lot of times, too, you have votes or actions that could be taken out of context. And um, that did actually happen in my election. Uh, because I I used to, uh, at my firm, I would have to interpret the Affordable Care Act, and I would have to tell employers how to comply with the provisions of the Affordable Care Act. And we had employers who said, well, I'll just make everybody part-time. And my job was to advise them, no, you can't do that. And here's what the law says. And there's a formula for converting you know, part-time employees. But that wouldn't stop my opponent from saying that I did everything I could so that the um, affordable care act didn't, that employers didn't have to provide the coverage to people, right? So there is a lot of a misinformation and you have to be able to respond to the misinformation. And if you don't, it, you know, it goes unanswered and some people will believe it. 
Do you feel like there that we're at the point, particularly with the proliferation of false information on social media? I just saw something like a few days ago. There was an actor; it's not worth it to name him, but he just blatantly misstated the rules when it came to signature verification in California, and he tried to create some false impressions with respect to signature verification. And then, and the tweet just went viral. So by the time you can do anything about it, you know, it's gone around the world. It's been retweeted maybe a million times. And it takes so much time to dig yourself out of that falsehood. Do you think that Congress has a role to play when it comes to not just lies and campaigns, but just a blatant lie you see on social media? Or is it best to just sort this out in the marketplace? Well, Congress has had congressional hearings um, and has brought in the Facebooks of the world and the Googles of the world on misinformation and what can be done. Uh, but we are seeing more and more of it. And I, by the way, did see the tweet that you're referring to. Uh, and I heard something today. I don't know how accurate it is, but I heard something today on a briefing that we had that it takes once a lie is out there, Somebody has to hear the honest truth six times before you can get them to turn that lie around or to, you know, believe what the actual truth is. And that that is a quite remarkable statistic. If it's only one lie versus, you know, someone has to hear it six times, um, there's got to be something. The problem is, as you probably know, in politics, there is a lot of wiggle room and yeah. you just have so many protections and there is it's very hard to make a case that some, something is not true or there is an intention for it to be malicious. I mean, there's just so, it is so hard to do that you can almost say anything that you want. And I actually have heard people say, just say it, let the other person prove that it's not true. And that's just not the way we should be running campaigns. And that's not the way we should be putting out information. It's interesting when you were saying this kind of six to one ratio, you have to hear the truth six times. It reminded me of the idea that you basically have to hear a, a compliment six times to try and combat criticism. And it makes me think that you must not only when you were running for office have faced lies, but also criticism. And you talked about this a little bit, the idea that, well, you know, you're not known here, you're not from here, you're not the right person. How just mentally or emotionally tough is it to put yourself in the public forum and say, no, it's, I am going to be a good representative and here's why. And you have to, I assume, deal with a whole host of criticism that my student evaluations, to the extent I get any negative ones, just pale in comparison. Well, I, it sometimes could be a very thankless job and there's always somebody who's not happy with what you're doing or what you stand for or what you're trying to do. Or there are also situations you're trying to help somebody um, and they don't get the result they want and uh, they're very unhappy with you. And so that's, I think, natural and it will happen. But you do have to develop a, a thicker skin. You do have to not take things personally. I mean, if you just take a look at some of the tweets uh, that some of uh, elected officials get, whether it's me or some of my colleagues, you know, they're getting just worse and worse by the day. And now to the point where there are death threats. Now that's not the norm, but, you know, going in, I think it's reasonable to, to tell people that when you are in public life, 
that you are scrutinized to a different level, you're held to a different standard, and that um, that's something to be expected. I I enjoy the job, and I think that you know it comes it comes with that, and I and I don't mind it. I just have to learn to not take it personal and remind myself that we are fighting for the greater good to to get um, good things done and improve the quality of life for people. Now, you mentioned um, threats to safety, and this brings us to the next topic that I actually wanted to talk about, which is how we uh, met, at least virtually. So I knew who you were prior to this, but we met the morning of the insurrection on a Zoom. Uh, I had been making some comments on TV, and then um, I think they got who they were waiting for. They finally got you on the Zoom. And... um, I'm hoping you could tell us just briefly, where were you when the violence broke out and where did you spend that day? Well, I was supposed to be in the house chamber when the violence broke out, but I was running late and uh, I was, I was headed toward the chamber at about, I think, 2.20. I was supposed to be there too when I got stopped and I was told to go back um, to my office, which is adjacent to the Capitol. And shortly thereafter, got instructions on sheltering in place and locking the doors and the staying away from the windows. This is something we've never heard before. We don't have drills that I've ever participated in on in Congress with even the intercon system or sheltering in place. So I knew that there was something seriously wrong. And then I saw and heard the stream of police cars coming down. Um, Independence Avenue toward the Capitol. And then we saw the images of the the security breach. And when I saw the images of these rioters right outside the House floor, the panic really set in because the buildings are connected by tunnels. And so once there's access in, you know, the getting to the members was something that could easily get done. And so so that was where the panic uh, set in, and it was very scary. We were barricaded in our office uh, for hours and hours on end when we would hear noises outside of our door. We didn't know if they were friendlies or the rioters. So it was uh, something unlike I've had to experience before and uh, hopefully we'll never have to again. I remember you. I said something very quick like, do you feel safe or are you okay? And you said they told us to only open the door for security, but how do I know if they're really security? Which is just an absolutely terrifying thing to hear from anybody. But again, remember, of course, uh, to the listeners, you're in the Capitol. You are, and what are you doing that day? Your constitutional duty. You're certifying election results. Uh, you had to be there. And um, that I I hope I never forget. I hope that in no way ever becomes normal, that the conversation we have. And um, I'm wondering what it feels like today when you go to work. Do you still feel that there's some potential danger when you're going, again, to do your duty as a public servant, to um, go through bill markups, to vote on proposed laws? Do you have moments of feeling like, you know what, this is this is kind of dangerous? Well, unfortunately, with the Capitol surrounded now by fencing, by the presence of National Guard everywhere, the increased uh, law enforcement presence, you already get the sense of danger. 
it reminds me of when I went to Afghanistan. Uh, and when I was there, I had to wear a bulletproof vest. And you're surrounded by uh, a lot of military and law enforcement to protect you. And the presence of um, the, the, the National Guard and more law enforcement and these fences combined just makes it feel that there's, there's danger involved. Um, and, you know, there are still threats out there on social media channels about um, targeting members of Congress and targeting the institution. So I think that's ongoing. The new angle we have, the new threat we have, unfortunately, is within the halls of Congress. And so if I walk now to the House floor and I'm about to enter the chamber to vote, I have to go through a metal detector. And that is something, number one, members of Congress would never have to go through a metal detector ever before, regardless of where you entered. As a matter of fact, in most of Washington, D.C., that was the case, unless you're maybe headed to the airport. Um, So this is very new for us. And the reasoning behind it is because members are worried about other members. We have members uh, trying to take guns onto the House floor, you know, on social media, showing their weapons. And just the other day, we had a member of Congress try to get through security with the gun. Security tried to stop him. And he handed the gun off to another member in the elevator saying, here, take this. And now there's an investigation pending. But there is no need for a member of Congress to have or need a firearm on the House floor. Um, it's it's insane. Yeah, it, insanity feels like an accurate word here. And my follow-up question is similarly going to seem insane in the sense that is there any collegiality across the aisle in the House right now? I mean, are there any, well, as far as you can see, are there across the aisle friendships or are is everybody so polarized that you really only kind of talk and socialize with the people from your political party? I mean, is there just such a deep divide uh, that, I mean, if you're talking about fearing for your safety and having to go through metal detectors because of your colleagues, it seems to me that that's pretty close to an irreparable divide. Yeah, I'm happy to say that it's actually not the case um, because we're talking about a handful of members that present the danger and that are trying to do this. But for the most part, there are a lot of great bipartisan relationships on the Hill. It's actually something I've prided myself on from the moment I stepped into Congress and so I serve, I play on the congressional baseball team and through that have built a lot of relationships um, across the aisle. It's actually how I got my invitation to go to Afghanistan when Republicans were in charge. And some of uh, my committee colleagues um, are that I work with are Republicans. So there are friendships across the aisle. There needs to be. It's kind of like when you're a lawyer and you have opposing counsel, you get way more done when you're friendly to the other side and you're more likely to settle a case if you um, are friendly with opposing counsel. So that does exist and more so than the public thinks. The media will focus on the divisions. It will focus on, you know, this threat. Uh, But I could probably tell you that my concern about being threatened by a member on the other side that might be carrying a gun is in the single digits. It might be nine members of Congress, uh, but it's it's not you know two hundred, and so that that I guess is how I could best explain that it's not across the board. 
That actually makes me so happy to hear that. Um, and I think you're right. I mean, I get information largely from media reports and it sounds like, how could you possibly walk into that place and have friendships across the aisle? But maybe, um, as is the case in so many situations, uh, maybe extracurricular activities like softball and baseball are our path forward. Um, now, I want to talk about two more kind of buckets of things, the impeachment and then legislative goals going forward. So we're obviously recording this after the impeachment. We know what happened. The House impeached. The Senate voted 57-43 to acquit. And I think a lot of us probably could have predicted the outcome. I think it was, we all felt from the beginning, it was very unlikely that there were going to be 67 votes in the Senate to convict. Do you feel like there was a purpose for holding the impeachment trial, even though the outcome that happened is the outcome that was predicted? Absolutely. You know, even though there was not a conviction, the American people had to see the case um, on how the president, the former president, was involved and to try to hold him accountable. To not have the impeachment trial and to say, well, we know what the outcome's going to be, let's not do this, I think would send a horrible message. And the trial was really about um, highlighting the, the former president's involvement, trying to hold him accountable, or trying to prevent that from happening again, and and laying out the facts on, you know, what do we want to be? You know, what kind of a country do we want to be and do we want to allow this to happen? You know, as my colleague, uh, Jamie Raskin, who was who was brilliant in, in leading the impeachment managers, you know, he would often talk about this January exception. Are we going to carve out that if you're in elected office as the president, that you can do whatever you want in your final weeks because uh, you won't be impeached? I mean, that was a very compelling way to put it when I when I heard it. Uh, but they carried out their constitutional, you know, oath and their duty to to hold the president accountable. Unfortunately, we had senators who went in uh, having their mind made up. And it's just hard to look at it when you come from a legal background, because you say, well, if that was really a trial, the all of these jurors that were senators would have been disqualified because they came in with this preconceived bias. They didn't listen to the court when they said that you could impeach a president that was out of office, which is something that the Senate had voted on. Yet that was still the basis for some senators uh, explaining why they did not impeach. Right. And so it's very hard to look at it and to remind yourself this is a political process. Um, I do hope that the criminal justice system will work and that the investigation will occur and that there will be um a real investigation into the former president's conduct and uh, and have charges uh, come out of that. Are you talking specifically about charges against former President Trump for incitement of violence, or do you think maybe the more likely situation is the civil case, for instance, that we saw filed on Tuesday, the NAACP on behalf of one member of Congress for civil remedies? in that case, saying, basically suing under the Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871, I think. Are you 
optimistic do you think that there might be a criminal charge against the president or is it too soon to tell based on the investigation? I think it's too soon to tell, but I think that there should be because based on the evidence that I saw during the impeachment, from my understanding of um, holding somebody accountable and what, and what the uh, prosecutors could look at, I do believe that, that there it needs to be investigated and that criminal charges need to be considered um, either uh, either under the insurrection provisions or some other, you know, felony available charge that will be there. And I'll leave that up to the prosecutors. But I think there are a number of members, even those who voted against impeachment, who believe the president needs to be held accountable and that uh, charges should be filed. Apparently, uh, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell might be one of them. The joke, of course, after he made that speech was Senator Mitch McConnell is going to be shocked to hear how Senator Mitch McConnell voted because he said, you know, the president is practically and morally responsible for that. And as I read it, essentially said, but not it. You take it, criminal justice system. And as you said, you know, basically the first, second and third things to know about an impeachment trial is that it's not truly a trial. Um, it's, it happens in a political form. And I think you're right for a lot of lawyers, it's startling to see the jurors, uh, you would never have jurors who were involved in the incident or even just witnesses to the incident. You would never have a presiding officer acting like a judge who was also a juror. It just is really an, an upside down world. And as you said, you know, if we didn't have the trial, it creates the statement that, uh, you can engage in the worst type of behavior either at the very end of your term or any time in your term and just resign. And then you could escape at least the punishments of impeachment, which seems to me to lack all constitutional basis. That's a really good point that I hadn't thought about the, you're just doing something and then resigning, but it's, it's, it's just goes against common sense that that would be allowed uh, from the commander in chief. It just doesn't, it goes against all common sense to me. Yeah. And I mean, as a lawyer, you know, you know, also it just, I think it goes against the structure of the constitution. It goes against the idea of accountability by public servants. I mean, it's just, it's all the things that you said. It, it, I think it's important to have the trial, even if you have essentially predetermined um, what the outcome might be. And this brings us to the last thing I wanted to talk about, which is connected to the first, we talked about your work on the subcommittee and your work, um, on behalf of some immigrants facing the worst type of uh, treatment. And I'm wondering what else you would like to see accomplished in the first year of the Biden administration. I mean, what to you as a lawmaker seems possible? What would you like to, you know, tap President Biden on the shoulder and say, I think you should do these three things? Well, one of my big things is environmental justice, and I think that it can be done in an infrastructure bill, which we're hearing is going to be uh, the next big thing after this COVID package. And, you know, I live in a district that's one of the most heavily polluted districts in the country. We have seen what the environmental injustice has done to communities of color and what it's doing now to COVID. It's killing more people who are suffering these injustices because they're the ones who have the respiratory illnesses and the asthmas and these pre-existing conditions that will make them more likely, you know, vulnerable, but likely to die. And so I would like him to have a big, bold investment, as he's spoken about, um, in 
addressing uh, these environmental justice issues. Now, I happen to have legislation out there to help invest in ports uh, to go in zero emissions, but there's a lot we really can do on this front. So that would be a, definitely one of them. And I'm, I'm talking about after we get you know, COVID relief and money in people's pockets and trying to get the economy up back up. I think the infrastructure bill will create jobs and will help put our country back on track uh, to get the economy going again. Um, but we, we can't do that without eradicating and addressing, you know, COVID. So I just want to make sure that we're clear that the top priority is COVID. But after, you know, COVID, it's going to be things like the infrastructure bill, uh, there's a lot of talk about um, and movement on immigration, which I think is um, is very is very doable, um, and I think we can get it done in this first year. Uh, and so, those are just some of the things that I would like to to see get done. Um, there's going to be a lot of conversation on healthcare, and that's going to be tied to COVID, uh, and because one of my big issues is uh, closing the gap in disparities in health. And there are a lot, we've seen COVID highlight those injustices and those inequities, um, even down to vaccine distribution. COVID has really laid bare so many of the inequalities in our society. Who can stay home? Uh, who can't? Who has access to good healthcare otherwise? Uh, who has the ability to sit on the internet for three hours during the day to try and make an appointment? Uh, who has a lobby to try and say to the governor, no, our group should be next. Um, it's really, as you said, it's been a, a story in so many ways of inequalities. And I'll um, remind our listeners to the extent that anyone is worried about getting a vaccine that Congresswoman uh, Barragan did, in fact, uh, get a vaccine. We were talking before we started taping. And um I hope to the extent anybody feels uncomfortable, it's another reminder that this is the safest route for us. And with that, I'm going to end the podcast with the three questions we ask all of our listeners. And so the first one, Congresswoman, uh, which famous person, dead or alive, would you want to invite to a dinner party and why? Well, does it count if I could say my dad or does that not count? Because I would have to say my dad or Vince Scully. Now, my father died when I was 23. I was very young. And so I feel like I didn't get enough time with him. He and I were big baseball fans. And so um, I would you know, just like to have more time with him. But to, if if I can't say him, I would say Vince Scully because uh, of my love for the Dodgers and the fact that that's what dad and I did together is we watched baseball games. And so when I hear Vince Scully's voice, it's like spending time with my dad. You absolutely can. There are no right or wrong answers. And um, it does make, we've actually gotten a similar answer a couple of times. And it makes me think we should rethink this because the truth is the same is true for me. The person I'd really like to sit down with is a family member who's passed away. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I love that um, idea of listening to Vince Scully and thinking about um, being with your dad and thinking about that being an important thing that you, that you two did together. Um, Thanks. Next question, you're going to be stranded on a desert island and you can bring one meal. I might preemptively say not Dodger dogs, just, just <laughs> to say, uh, what else would it be? Well, my mom used to say that I should have been Italian because I loved Italian food growing up. So I'm going to say pizza because it is one of my all-time favorites go-to comfort meal. 
And uh, what I think about it, there's so many things that I think of, but pizza is probably the one that I would miss the most. Last question. You get one superpower for one hour. What is it? This is hard uh, because I don't know what the superpower would be, but I think it would be uh, to eradicate the COVID pandemic or to end homelessness. I mean, it's, and I don't know how you do that in an hour. And I think about, you know, when I was a kid and I would watch some shows, it's like the genie would come out of the bottle and you would make the wish. So maybe it's that, it's like that wish of, you know, ending COVID or the wish of ending homelessness. I wish that so many of the biggest problems facing us could be solved in 23 minutes or less in sitcom style. But we talked about a lot of those and I appreciate you being so generous with your time. And I had a lovely time talking with you. Thank you, Congresswoman. Well, thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. You can find Congresswoman Berrigan on Twitter at Rep Berrigan. You can find me on Twitter at Levinson Jessica, the podcast on Twitter at Pass Judgment Pod, and on Instagram at Passing Judgment Pod. Thank you to our listeners, and we wish everybody a great day.